Would you please open your Bibles up to John chapter 17? That would be greatly appreciated. John 17 is where we will be this morning. And then as you're opening there, I want to share a little bit of statistics with you. So in 2009, the Center for Bible Engagement, they did a study related to realities of Bible reading and listening. And this is kind of what they found. They actually discovered something significant relating to this uh, reality that they call the power of four. The power of four is in reference to the number of days a week that a person would engage their Bible. So, um, so you know, there are seven days in a week. If you engage the Bible four days in a week, that means you're engaging your Bible a majority of the days in the week. And uh, it's interesting, like, they, they marked an effect that, that Bible reading actually has an effect on uh, what happens to people, how people change, and, and that kind of stuff. But something significant happens when you move from three days a week to four days a week. That uh, somehow when you engage the Bible a majority of the days of each week, it crosses a significant line. That all of these statistics kind of move majorly in a positive direction. So this is what they found. I'm going to kind of share some of this. So this is, all of this is in comparison to the, the non-Bible reading population. So uh, in general, those who engage scripture four days a week, they have uh, four days a week or more, they have a lower reporting of kind of what we would call struggles of the human experience. So anywhere you, you have in this range, anywhere from a 20% drop to a 70% drop in uh, thinking unkindly about others, in difficulty forgiving others, in feeling like I have to hide from other people, and in, uh, you actually have like a 40% drop in the experience of bitterness towards other people. Um, those who engage their Bible four days a week or more have a lower reporting of destructive behaviors. So uh, you have a 28% drop in gossiping, a 28% drop in lying, a 59% drop in sex outside of marriage and viewing pornography, a 62% drop in drinking to excess or drunkenness. And then uh, you have on top of all of that, so those are like all things that you would like to, let's not do those things, but there are actually like positive behaviors that are created by this. And this is actually what is most encouraging and amazing to me. So among those who read their Bible four days a week or more, you have a 228% increase in the likelihood to share the gospel. A 407%, the, the, the people who do this are 407% more likely to memorize scripture. 416% more likely to give their money away to church and organizations and other people. Uh, 218, sorry, 218% more likely, so 416% more likely to give to the church, 218% more likely to give to groups outside of the church, and then those who give, give 200% more than other people, the amount that they give, right? So all of this says that if you engage scripture, a majority of days, you actually experience something powerful, it shifts somehow inside of you. It shifts your priorities. It shapes you into a healthier person, uh, physically, mentally, spiritually, emotionally, right? It renovates your life, right? It brings renewal where there once was stagnation. 
So today we are starting a new series called The Bible. Uh, sorry, How to Read the Bible. The last series that we did was called The Bible, and now we are moving into the series. We kind of did a big survey of what is Scripture, how do the Old and New Testaments work, why can we trust Scripture, but today we are talking about how to read the Bible, and we'll be here for the next few Weeks. We're going to be talking about how to engage Scripture the way that God intended us to engage, how to interact with God through Scripture. So today, the conversation that we're going to have is really a conversation about mindset. So uh, I'm going to give us an encouragement to remember the why behind what we're doing. Because I don't know if you've ever gotten stuck in the middle of something and not remembered the why, but if you are doing something that, that you don't totally understand the purpose for what you're doing, the, the doing of that thing can get old pretty quickly, right? And so let's talk about why we are reading scripture, and this is why we're in John 17. So John 17 verse 14 is where we are going to start. Jesus has, uh, they, they're in the upper room together, they have, uh, they're eating together, and Jesus is in the middle of what is called his high priestly prayer. This is a prayer for his disciples, and this is what he says in verse 14. Right in the middle of this prayer, he's talking about uh, what he has done for the disciples, that he has been faithful to care for them, and so he says to the Father, Father, I have given them your word. So when whatever he has to say next, uh, in Jesus' mind, like w- this is the connection between the word and the disciples. What connection does the word have to the disciples? So it goes on, and it says this. It says, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. So then in verse 15, he says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. So here's the reality. When Jesus has given his disciples God's word, this is what it means. Jesus has instructed them in things, and it just so happens that the things that Jesus has instructed them in, the world finds detestable. Right? The world does not appreciate. Like Those who don't want to believe the things that Jesus is teaching find the things that he teaches detestable. Right? So what goes along with what Jesus teaches? Well, you have the denial of the ability to find righteousness within yourself. You have an insistence upon repentance. In fact, it was like the major message that he spoke through the majority of his ministry. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You tell people they need to change, and you know, surprisingly, people don't love to be told that they have to change. Uh, you have an unveiling of the evil one, and not an unveiling of the evil one, but an explicit statement to some people that they belong to the evil one. Right? You have an emphasis from Jesus on the forgiveness of sins, that all of us have something inside of us that needs to be dealt with, that we have sin that needs to be forgiven, even the most religious of us. You have frank discussion from Jesus about the realities of hell and judgment. You have from Jesus a command to love your enemies. Yeah, I know, right? A denial of the right to take vengeance upon anyone. Right? Jesus, these teachings of Jesus, the commands, the prophecies, the fulfillments of the Old Testament, they all have something to say about the human condition, and they all uniquely challenge the human condition. So when Jesus gives that message in this world, it is both unnatural and offensive 
to us. So this is what we're going to do. As we kind of explore this relationship between having the word and what it means for disciples, we're actually going to build a pyramid this morning. So the, the kind of the foundational piece of this pyramid, of this relationship between the word and the disciples, the foundational piece, which Jesus has already indicated, is that by giving the disciples his word, they are initiated in otherness. They're initiated in otherness from the world. There's something that they are kind of uh, different from the world and in fact hated by the world. So then verse 17 goes on and Jesus says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So, so to sanctify is to consecrate. It is to take something that is ordinary and set it apart for holy things, right? It is literally to be set apart. In this case, the ordinary of the world is the brokenness of the world, right? So you're, you're taking something that is ordinary and brokenness, and that world is set against God. And so if something is sanctified, that means it is moving away from the ordinary brokenness of the world into wholeness. So um, the Christian doctrine of progressive sanctification comes in here. Jesus is praying, Father, increase their holiness. Set them apart from the brokenness, which is interesting because he has already said they are not of this world. And his prayer is essentially, yes, they are not of this world. And would you make them even more not of this world? Right? Would you increase the extent to which they are not of this world? Make them whole and holy. Sanctify them. So, so the foundational piece of the relationship between word and, dis- and the disciples is that uh, it initiates in otherness, but it also increasing in otherness. It increases us in our otherness as we interact with the word. Uh, so it goes on in verse 18. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world, and for their sake I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. So Jesus, uh, what we understand, Jesus was sent forth from the Father, commissioned for a purpose, a mission. He had something he had to go to do, that he was going to go and give his life for the sake of the world and preach a message for the sake of the world. And what's interesting is Jesus says to the Father, as you sent me, so I am sending them. Right, which indicates to us, this is indicative, that the same mission that Jesus is on, that, that we are an extension of that mission that he was sent to go on. So this relationship between word and disciple is not just about us being other, but us being commissioned for a purpose. We are commissioned for a purpose, and each of these ideas is building one upon the other, and we'll see more and more how it is building. So verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So here, Jesus has been up to this point praying only for his 12 disciples. But then what he does is he extends the prayer beyond the 12 disciples because what he's saying is, uh, I gave them your word. And now they are going to give that word to other people. People will believe in me through their word. And so when they give the word away, there are going to be people who come after them. And so verse 21 says that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. 
So here, the giving of the word, right, it extends beyond them to us. We are those who have believed in Jesus through the word that was given to the apostles. They wrote it down and they spoke it to each other and they preached it on the streets to make sure that it ended up throughout the ages staying consistent, that we could be recipients of it. And so now Jesus is praying for us so that we might become one, so that the world might believe. Right, so the word Jesus gave to the disciples to sanctify them, to give to us, to sanctify us, to give to others, to sanctify them. So the fourth piece of this uh, pyramid is that we are directed towards the world. That, that the word being given to us is indicative uh, not only of our otherness and being initiated in that otherness and not only our separation from the world and not only being commissioned for a purpose, but that in being separated from the world, we are then aimed back at the world. We are directed towards the world. And then in verse 22, it says, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. So his glory, Jesus' glory, when he talks about his glory, it is a revealing of all that we fail to be. Right When Jesus comes, God takes on flesh, the person of Jesus Christ. He reveals to the world what we were supposed to be, right? We failed to be. He is perfectly, man, he, he was sinless. He was in sync with God. He did the will of God. God made flesh in the flesh, never breaking from alignment with God. And we are broken and we live in a broken world. But what we are told is that there is a way into life that is as God intended it. And the way into that life is with Jesus. So we break away from the brokenness by following Jesus who performed all of these things perfectly. So if we could talk about this for just a second. Those of you who have known Jesus for a long time, you at one point realized his grace and his forgiveness and his acceptance. You realized the welcome that he has extended to you by his death. And then as you realize that, you notice that you start to change, right? And actually, like, you didn't just change one time, but ever since then, you have been changing, right? So this is the incredible thing. Every single one of us have stories of how Jesus is making us new. We all have stories of how Jesus is making us new. There is a work that Jesus is doing inside of us to change us because Jesus was perfectly in sync with God. And as we follow Jesus and listen to his word, he brings us increasingly in sync with himself. So he says to the father, just as you are and I are one, make them one with each other and with me. Let us all be in sync together. And thereby, that increasingly renews us into alignment with the desires of our creator. So the last piece of this kind of relationship between disciples and the word is that we are in sync with 
Christ, not the band in sync, but that we are aligned with Christ, right? We are together with him, right? So this is kind of the, this encapsulates the picture of the relationship between the word and us. So when we ask the question, why would we come to the word? That's what Jesus is indicating to us. The word is that we might be sanctified, right? So, so this is what happens. If we could just like condense that down into a statement. This is the statement. The word increasingly aligns us with Christ for the sake of the world. Like when you open your Bible up, you are not simply performing a task to check a box, but God is doing something in that moment. He is seeking to align you with Christ for the sake of the world. Increasingly, every time you interact with it, he's doing something else to increasingly align you with Christ for the sake of the world. So why do I engage the world? Or sorry, why do I engage the word? So first and foremost, many parts of me are broken. Everybody take your finger and point it up and point it to me, point it to me. Say, many parts of you are broken. That's very good. And now take your finger and point it to you and say, many parts of me are broken. There there we go. Okay, we've got it together, right? So many parts of me are broken and the world itself is broken, right? But Jesus is good. And the more I am aligned with Jesus... Yes, the more other I am to the world. But at the same time, the more empowered I am to actually show the world something worth believing. Right? The more I am aligned with Jesus, the more I am, yes, other from the world, but then the more empowered I am to show the world something that is actually worth believing. Right? So when I went through that series of statistics at the beginning, and you heard me say... Uh, you know, these people are different for this reason. They, uh, their behaviors are different for this reason. You might be tempted to think that uh, you would go to the Bible for behavioral modification. And behavioral modification is not the end goal of our interaction with Scripture. Repentance and alignment with Christ is the end goal. That results in... Us becoming the kind of people that when they see us, they see Jesus and they're more likely to believe. Right? So, if they do actually see the goodness of God and the glory of Jesus reflected in the words and actions and love of his people, then the reality is, like, we should look out because it might be other to them, but it has the power to spark faith inside of them. So, uh, this is what I'm going to assume. I'm going to assume that every New Testament writer who ever talked about how we should relate to the word and how we should be kind of growing and changing, that they agreed with Jesus' purpose that he prayed in John 17, right? So I'm going to make that assumption, which is probably a fair assumption, which is then probably why Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, and says this, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The implication in all of these cases, with teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness, the implication is that the word is making us something different 
than what we were before we encountered the word. Every time we engage with it, it is doing something to us to make us different than we were when we first encountered it. So, like, how many of you can think of a teacher that you had in school who, because you had that teacher, you are a different person because you interacted with that teacher, right? You can think of somebody, a teacher that you had, because you know what? Teaching changes us, right? The way a teacher interacts with us changes us. And then it says reproof. Reproof is kind of this idea that you are confronting false teaching or belief or false doctrine with what is true, Correction literally means to take something that is bent and make it straight. Training in righteousness indicates an increasing in holiness. And the point of all of this is that the word of God is meant to change us. All right, so here's what I want to do. I want to do a kind of a, a quick survey of New Testament passages related to this change process that Paul refers to here and that Jesus referred to in John 17. And as we do this, we are going to kind of, um, I, I want to give us a tool. I want to give us four questions to help us engage the word on its own terms. Right As we come to the word and we kind of want to meet God on his terms, I want to give us four questions to guide us through that process. So four questions to help us engage the word. First, we're going to start in Romans 12, 1 and 2. It says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Verse 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So according to Paul, one of the things that stops us from becoming like the world, right? Because he wants to uh, say, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed. One of the things that stops us from conforming to the world is the renewing of our mind. So the implication is that the world has a way that it thinks, that it kind of perceives things, that it interprets events, and the world actually wants us to think like it thinks, right? It wants us to adopt its way of understanding. The world wants us to process information the same way that it does. The world wants us to use its interpretive framework for the events that happen. The world wants us to see things the way it sees things. This is a reference to this idea. You may have heard this word before, and if not, don't feel bad. I'm going to define it for you anyway. The word is worldview. Worldview. It is core assumptions about the world that shape how I think and understand. That's all worldview is. It's core assumptions about the world that shape how I think and understand. So all the time, the world is trying to convince us to see things the way it sees things. Last week, we talked about this big word called meta-narrative, how God is telling a big story throughout all of Scripture and how that story kind of explains all of history very clearly, right? Meta-narrative is a part of worldview. Meta-narrative, uh, how you see yourself in relation to the rest of the world. Like, what, what do you exist for? What is your purpose? Like, are you in competition with the rest of the world? Right? That, for what it's worth, that's the temptation of the political season, right? We're two groups who have two tribes who are in competition with each other, and we're trying to see who wins. Right? Uh, are you meant to just be a person who achieves more and more and more in this world? Are you, do you see yourself, like, primarily as a victim of this world? 
Do you see yourself primarily as entitled to something in this world? All of that is informed by your worldview, how you see yourself in relation to the world. Your worldview answers the question like, how do you determine what words mean? There's a lot of debate publicly right now about particular words and what particular words mean. Right? We get that debate because what you have existing is contrasting worldviews that are vying for power and a place in the culture, right? So this is the result of multiple worldviews being at odds with each other. And it says here, do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So the first question in these four questions that we are providing is this. As I come to scripture, how would God change my worldview? How would God change my worldview? Right? God has some core assumptions about the world and how it works and some ways that he desires us to think about the world, to shape how we understand the world. Here's an example. I was at an evangelism conference this weekend, and, uh, or sorry, this week, during the week at uh, Wheaton, and uh, John Dixon, uh, he's a professor there at Wheaton, he comes up and talks about how he has uh, lost some debates about uh, apologetics and that kind of stuff, right? He's lost some debates with uh, known atheists. And he said, you know what? Like, I can lose well. I can actually afford to lose well in those situations, right? I didn't have the intellectual acumen. I couldn't convince enough people to come to my side. But here's what I know. I know that I can afford, afford to lose well because Jesus is Lord and every room that I am in, Jesus owns that room. Right? So, so wherever I go, if I go somewhere and someone is slandering me for my belief in Jesus, well, you know what? They can slander me all they want. Jesus still owns the room. Right? Jesus is Lord. When martyrs stood before rulers of Rome or uh, governors of Rome and they're there and they're being put on trial for their faith, they chose not to. Oh, that's fine. That's, it fell back down. That's okay. Don't worry about it. We'll get to it later. Uh, when, when martyrs were on trial before different governors and people and, and Caesars in Rome, they didn't recant their faith. Do you know why? Because they knew as they stood there on trial that Caesar didn't own the room. Jesus owned the room. Jesus is Lord in that situation, right? So, so if that is your core assumption about how you walk every situation that you walk into, that is going to shape the way you interact with the world, the way you see yourself in relation to the world, right? So, so how does God want to change my worldview? That's the first question. The second question comes to us from Philippians chapter 3. Verses 7 and 8, it says in verse 7, Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. So uh, this is what has just happened before verse 7. Paul had listed his spiritual resume. Right? He had listed all of his accomplishments. He was a Jew of Jews, a Pharisee of Pharisees. He had been educated to the highest degree. He had achieved kind of the highest level of things that you could achieve inside the Jewish faith. But then he said, like, to him, it's worthless. Right? To me, I count it as rubbish in light of Christ. Like, Christ is most lovely. 
Christ is the highest to be considered. Christ is most wonderful. Right? There are so many things that my life could be about. So many things that I could choose to pursue. But he says, I counted it as rubbish because Christ was so much more valuable. Right? So he says, for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. Right? He says, there, uh, the, the, this word know, it's important because in this case, it is not a statement about kind of the content of information. It's not like, he's not saying, I'm acquiring more and more information about Christ. This word know is a relational word. Right? When I say that I know somebody, I'm not going to explain to you all the content I know about that person. I am talking about the quality of our relationship. That I am known in this per- I am known by this person and this person knows me. Right? So he says, I want to know Christ really, really well. The implication is that he wants to grow in deeper intimacy with Christ, in deeper relationship with Christ. So the second question that we should be asking inside of these four questions is this. How would God change my attitudes and affections? How would God change my attitudes and affections? As I come to the word, and I mean, here, this is an encouragement because some, so many times when we uh, come to the Bible, especially as Americans who love to do things, we come and ask, okay, God, what do you want me to do? And oftentimes when we come with that attitude, uh, God comes to us and says, well, we have to start first with what you're going to be, and that is loved, right? So when we understand that, and the more you interact with scripture, the more you understand how deeply broken you are, how, uh, how infected by sin your life has been, how prone to rebellion you have been. And that makes the words, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, far more sweeter. And sweeter and sweeter every time you read them. And what it does is it rewires the affections of your heart. It changes your attitude. Right? So, as you encounter God in his word, you're asking, how would God not only change but the kind of the way I understand the world, how would God change my heart? How would God change what I love? How would he change my affections? Uh, the next piece of this, 2 Timothy 2, 23 to 26. Paul instructs Timothy to have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. Verse 24, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. Now, all of this is very interesting. uh, He's referring to Timothy as a bearer of the word, as a shepherd of God's people. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but you have to be ready to teach. You have to be ready to interact with the word and bring the word to bear on situations. And so then uh, in the middle of verse 25, it says, God may perhaps grant that opponent of yours repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will there are ideas and concepts this is not just like the way that you think about the world right but then uh, if you kind of go up a level from the way you think about the world to just kind of individual ideas If you take those ideas kind of at their own, like on their own terms, those ideas do not lead you to a good place. 
Uh, it could be information, it could be facts, but the things that you know could end up leading you not to a good place. And Paul here encourages Timothy, as a teacher of the word, to approach those who are promoting false ideas and concepts to bring them to a knowledge of the truth. So this is more concerned with their particular thoughts. So here's just like an easy example of this as we think about uh, kind of the wrong ideas we get about who God is and what he does. Imagine having the thought, you know, I'm so glad God created Jesus. Like just imagine that thought. Now some of you heard immediately what was wrong with that, right? Right? When I come to scripture, scripture shows me that Jesus was not created, right? But has always been creator at the Father's side, right? So, so what scripture does as we interact with it, even if we kind of are starting to get the worldview of scripture, it comes to us and it still addresses wrong ideas that we have. And it says, hey, you need to change these ideas too, right? So the third question that we have to ask here is, how would God change my knowledge, Like literally the content of the things that I know, how does God want to change those things? What falsehood does God want to replace with truth? And then finally, uh, James chapter one, verses 22 to 25. In verse 22, James says, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. So the book of James, for what it's worth, if you've ever read the book of James, it is concerned with action. It is concerned with the things that we do. Do I care for the poor? Do I abuse with my tongue? Do I act as if the gospel I say I believe is true? He says this word that we interact with, it's like a mirror to us. It shows us where we are out of alignment with God. And then we can't just like look at it and then walk away. We have to do something with it. So the fourth question that that we would be led to ask as we interact with the word is, as I come to the word, how would God change my actions? So uh, can I let you in on a secret? We'll leave this up here for just a second, just a little bit of a secret. These four questions consume about half the time that I spend preparing my sermon each week. Right? These four questions consume all that time because you know what? A preacher has two jobs. We have to know the text really, really well And then we have to know the people that we are preaching to really, really well. And so about half of my work is, as I am encountering the text, I am praying, asking not just, God, what information is here that I need to make sure that I communicate to people? Not just asking, God, what does this mean so that I can tell other people what this means? But asking God first, um, as I interact with this, how do you want to change me? And then, As I bring this to your people, how do you desire to change them? Because this is what I know. If we engage the word and leave unchanged by it, then we're not really engaging the word. We're just puffing ourselves up with knowledge. Right, so church, remember the purpose 
of the word. The word increasingly aligns us with Christ for the sake of the world. So what? So what? Read the Bible is too narrow. I want you to engage the Bible. Right? Most, for what it's worth, most of the recipients of uh, the original texts of Scripture, they did not read text. They were not readers. They were not literate, right? Which means that they spoke scripture to each other, that they memorized it far more than we memorize it, that they heard letters of the apostles read aloud in their meetings together, that they put the truths that were written in scripture into hymns and spiritual songs that they could sing to each other. They memorized it by repeating it over and over and over again to each other because they couldn't read. And so what they had to do is that they had to work hard Because the word was not a thing separated from them that they could go to. They actually had to get the word inside of them so that they could hold on to it. But it's interesting. Like, if you you read the Bible, you rarely see a command to read the Bible. You don't see the word, make sure you read scripture there. What you see is, hide the word in your heart. Meditate on this thing, I have to say. Guard your heart with the word. Follow the words that I'm saying. Listen to what, it, which for what it's worth, this word listen is not just hear, but hear and obey. Listen to what I have to say. All of these describe how we are to take in God's word. All of these commands are given not to keep the word separate from us, but to make the word a part of us. So the big idea is to meet God in his word and let him change you with it. Uh, So what number two? The decision to engage God's word on his terms is fundamentally an act of humility. Why? Well, it requires you to acknowledge your own brokenness, your own faulty worldview, your own crooked affections, your own false beliefs, your own broken actions. It requires you to do that and open yourself up to being changed by something that is outside of you. It admits that I can't stay the way that I am. I need to be shaped by how God wants me to be shaped. So sometimes people tell us, you Christians, you're so arrogant. You think you know everything. You, uh, you have your Bible and you are just convinced that your Bible is the only right way. And it's actually like, no, I am not standing against the Bible and standing in judgment of it and saying, I'll figure out for myself what is true. I'm saying that I'm helpless without the Bible because it's actually changing the broken person that I am. Right? So engage God's, engaging God's word is an act of submitting to him and asking him to shape you because you know you can't become the person that you need to be yourself. Number three, believers don't engage the word alone. The Holy Spirit helps us. This one is incredibly important. He is the one who illuminates the word for us. When I sit down with the word, I try every time to remember, if I come to this passage with my own self and my own understanding, I am in trouble. I need the Holy Spirit's help. 
So what of myself as I come to the word do I need to set aside so that he can be the one who fills me? And then he illuminates the passage that I'm studying. He helps me to see what I'm missing. Uh, So this does not mean that he's sitting there and whispering definitions of words into my ear so that I can make, oh, thank you, Holy Spirit. I'm going to write that down. But what he's doing is he's putting my affections, my worldview kind of in the right place so that as I engage God with his word, I'm able to understand what it is that God is trying to say to me. So, like, how many of you have the ability to change your own affection? So he not only helps us, like, to read the word, but he does something to us. How many of you can change your own affections? How many of you are able to change what you love? Uh, Just like somebody says, you need to love something different. Are you able to do that? If anybody does, I would love to talk to you afterwards. Right? None of us are able to do this. You love what you love. That just is. So good news, the Holy Spirit is with you as you engage the word. And through your surrender to him and your surrender to God's word, he teaches your heart to love Jesus more and more. Uh, And then finally, number four. Give away what you are getting. Give away in words what you are getting. That as God speaks to you and as his word interacts with you and changes you, that you would be able to condense that into some way to say, can I share with you how God is changing me, how he confronted me today, how he is teaching me to love him more, how he's teaching me to rest and what it means that he simply loves me as his child, right? Put, put what God is teaching you into words and then share it. And then as you read God's word and you put it inside of your heart, share that with other people, right? Share it in words, but then also share it in deed. The person that you become. As, God word, as God's word shapes us, if we seek to share the truth about Jesus without displaying a reality that Jesus actually changes us, then people will never give credence to the words that we say. Right? We need to actually be able to show in our spheres of influence that Jesus has done something powerful and meaningful in our lives that no other power has been able to do for any human being in all of existence. We display Jesus's power through our deeds. And, and by these things, this is how we become the kind of people who reveal the glory of Jesus to the world. Church, would you pray with me, please? It is so easy for, to forget, Father, that as we come to your word, that we can turn it into a task, into a box to check. We can... Uh, fail to meet with you on your terms or uh, Lord help us to sometimes think that we are somehow religiously lifted up above others because we've performed our task today. But your word is not given for any of that. Your word was given simply to change us. Jesus, I thank you for this prayer that you prayed over your disciples and for all those who would come after them for us, that we would take this word and it would uh, set us apart, that it would make us other from the world and that it is in our otherness from the world that we are able to effectively show the world something worth believing.
Lord, I know you've given us a task and a mission. Lord, you've fo- you're focusing on us on this community and the communities around us, the, the kind of people that you desire us to become. Lord, you're, you're setting our attention on the world as a church on the others that you are calling us to reach. And as you set our attention on these things, would you sanctify us in your word? Your word is truth. Father, shape us, inform us into the people that you desire us to be, not just so that we can say, look at the kind of people we become, but so that we might effectively bring the truth about who Jesus is to a world who desperately needs the hope that he extends. Jesus, thank you for these things. Would you shape us, inform us in your word? I pray this in Jesus' name.